Okay, turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. Now, last week we were in Proverbs 5, 6, and 7, and again, I don't think we need to repeat much because I think Solomon did that plenty of times. He said, okay, my boys, I want you to listen. Sin is out there. Sin is right there, right next to you. It's in front of you. It's behind you. It's all around you. It is around you. And it, it is so enticing. It is so, um, well, it, it just seems to lure you in. So you need to be aware that it wants to just grab you. It's like a rope that wants to bind you. And so he made it, he just, he just kept over and over saying, now pay attention, now listen. And the main gist was be aware that you have an enemy, but also you have a human nature that loves to gravitate to these now enticing kind of things that, well, they, they just, they just, look like something that you want right now. They make you think, oh, you'll be happy now. This will content you now. This will satisfy you now. This is, and just beware, he says. And another thing he wanted to say, he says, now listen, my son, I want you to know that nothing gets by the Lord. And we will go over it again today. So for Proverbs or Romans, this message either from Solomon or from Paul, we, are need, we need to be reminded that for a man's ways are in view of the Lord and he examines all of our paths. So that was last week. And I got a note from somebody this week and they said to me, um, you were kind of a downer. <laughs> and uh, I, I knew what she was saying. I knew, you know, and these lessons kind of are. Because, um, but you know what? It would be so e much easier for me to try to just kind of, you know, soothe over that. And, and like last week, I told you, you can't soften it. You can't skirt around the corner. You can't sugarcoat it. You've got to know this before you can experience all what he's done for us. So this is the hard part, and this is why he put it right in the beginning of the letter. He said, you know what, Romans 1, I want you to know there is no one that has any excuse that they can say, well, no one ever told me, you know, blame, blame, blame. He said, no, there is no man with ex without excuse. They, they, there, is, there are people that will try to do that, but he said, no, there isn't. All you have to do is look around and see that there is someone who is bigger. That all you have to do is ask, and you will find that there is a God that is overall, in all, and through all. So he says in Romans 2, and he says, um, I want you to know, well, in Mormons 1, he says, I'm not ashamed of this gospel. And so I'm going to keep saying it because this has got to be told, you know. And then in the second chapter, he made it very much, he made us aware that, you know, so often when, when you find yourself a religious person, 
that has a tendency to lead to a self-righteous attitude. And, and then you forget. I'm going to tell you last night, this is what I ended with, kind of, but I'm going to start with this this morning so you can know that and you be thinking about it. Because how often have you sung um, this song, this old hymn, and it said, for such a worm as I, right? Yeah. Well, I'm going to tell you that um, you still are a worm. <laughs> and I am still a worm. That never changes. However, we have someone that can take us and, and make us new, but that's still, in my human nature, I'm still a worm. I still have to remember that. I have to remember that, yes, I am still a human being in this state, and I still gravitate, and, and, I, and I'm addicted to sin. My natural human nature, my thoughts, um, whatever, I just, you just step out of God's place, and you find yourself just being sucked into that. So be aware of the fact, and then when we get to these words of Paul, he says, you know, just always remember from whence you came. That will keep you in the right steadfast relationship, knowing that you're looking up to him, needing him, holding on tight to him. But if you think that you are no longer a worm, then you that's when self-righteousness starts coming in. You start thinking that, oh, because of what Jesus did for me, that just, you know, just makes me better than anybody else. No, it just means that you're just that much more of a worm, but saved by grace. And I, I don't, you know, that sounds, sounds terrible in a sense, but... To me, that little phrase keeps me humble before the Lord. It, it keeps self-righteousness away that I keep remembering that I was a worm, I am a worm. And I'm going to stay in this human nature. I will stay this way, but the day is coming that I won't be a worm because I will be like him because I will see him and be like him in every way. But to keep things at bay, to keep me like Paul is saying in Romans 3, you need to, whatever, for me it was that phrase, but for you, whatever you need to do to, rem, to remind yourself that that's who you were, it's who you still are. It, but for the grace of God, you now have all this. But I still need to keep reminding myself Otherwise, I move into a category in an area that, that he does not, I will not stay humble before him. That I won't be needing him as much. So anyway, we move to the third chapter today and he says, what advantage then is there in being a Jew or what value is there in circumcision? Now, this is pretty much on, you know, so I, the very first question, I said, where do you have a tendency to think your goodness comes from? You know, where, you know, how, does, how do we start this lesson today? What is he really talking about here? 
And so I think that we have to take a look first at, all right, now, what do you think makes you a good person? Where does your goodness come from? See, what a difference in your answer when you, when you know yourself as a worm. If you, if you think of yourself as a worm, then you think, oh, my goodness, my goodness comes from him and him alone. But if you've moved out of that worm stage and you start thinking that you're just, you know, all of a sudden this self-righteousness creeps in, then you think you need all your credentials. Oh, it's all my credentials. That Now, Paul, in the book of Galatians, he says that, and, and so we're taking both sides of this. So first of all, we got to take a look at from Romans 1 and 2, we got to know that is there anything that can make you right other than the blood of Christ? No. We got that straight? We all know that. There is nothing. But in our human, in our human nature, what are some of the credentials that you kind of think, um, well, you know what? I have a good stock in uh, uh, Christian school. I did. I had a good... Um, upbringing. I go to church all the time. I, oh, last night they were giving me all kinds. One person said, profession of faith. And then she went on to say, she says, we were taught, and this is where the law comes in. We were taught that, that we had to make profession of faith before we graduated from high school had nothing to do with the fact that, well, I saw myself in need of a savior. <laughs> nope, this is what we did before we graduated. And then the whole group of us would go, because then we'd all go to the elders, you know, together, and so no one had to do it on their own. And, and you know, the more that we talked last night, the more you could see that, that the, these laws that, that we have a tendency to um, think that, oh, if I follow all those laws, all those rules that they set up, then, oh, then I'm good. That helped me understand what this chapter is really saying and how we get caught up in those things. And now Paul said, my credentials, he said, oh, in Galatians, he, 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 he lists them. Oh, I was born a Jew, I was one of God's chosen people. And then, oh my, to be a part of the tribe of Benjamin? And then, oh, Pharisee University did me well, and I graduated top of my class. And I knew, I knew that Old Testament backwards and forwards, and I obeyed every letter of that law. And he walked around for years with his robes and his tassels and his, his expertise and all of his knowledge and religion. And he walked around and everybody was awed by him except Jesus. And Jesus needed to knock him down right to the ground. See, Paul, no wonder the Lord chose Paul because he knew both sides of this thing. And so he does know what he's talking about when it comes to self-righteousness. And so when he, when he lists all of his credentials, that for years he thought, 
That's what made me good. That's what people were impressed with. That's who made me who I was. And then after he meets Jesus, after his life is changed, and after he's preaching a whole different message, instead of all of his religious sermons, he changed his, his message to Jesus. Isn't that something? And what did he say? All those things that I thought I needed, uh, what did he say? I count them all for what? Rubbish. Dung. Garbage. I know some of these versions are very descriptive, but I think it all tells us that Paul saw that no, all of it was worthless. Because bottom line, Bottom line, we are saved by the blood of a Savior. That's it. And everyone has to get to that point. Now, today, he, he kind of flips it and says, but do you just throw that all out? Do you just, because when he says, is being a Jew, is that a bad thing? Is a circumcision, was it a bad thing? No, it was not a bad thing because in the Old Testament, um, it, it brought you to that covenant of Abraham. You belonged to this and this family of God, and it was, it was good. It was, a, it was a good thing. And he said, um, I needed to be a Jew because then um, I had parents then that followed the, the, the scripture. And, and what he's saying is, is that all your credentials, and we all, I hope you all, we all had different ones, I'm sure. I mean, some of us had maybe the same ones. But, but yet, did any one of those credentials save you? No, and that was the question I asked you. They did save you. I mean, you know, I know I bring this up all the time, but but she was such an impactful person in my life. And so um, when Aunt Bertha would corner me on different things, um, as good and as monumental as she was in my life, did she save me? No, she didn't, but she did a bang-up job leading me to the one who did. So now Paul is flipping it, saying, don't just say my credentials are bad. No, but get them in their proper place. Be grateful that every one of them, whether it's church or Christian school or, or for me, Children's Bible Hour or, um, you know, whatever person or thing in your life that led you to the one who showed you who you really are, and how badly you need a savior. Oh, goodness. How, how would you have gotten there otherwise? So that's why Paul says, uh, I just want to make sure that, you know, before, and maybe Romans 2, you had the cart before the horse. You put all your good works and all the things that you could do. You tried to deal with your sin and your, your you know, all that. You tried to deal with it through your own means. And you try to be a, a good person and, and be somebody and, and make achievements and work yourself to a position that everybody thought well of you. And then he said, but you know what? The thing that really matters is that 
you are saved by grace. And then you are thankful for all the means that got you to that ultimate decision. So when he says, first of all, they have been entrusted with the very words of God. So he's talking to the Jews and he's saying to them, now, I know I really beat you up bad last week and really exposed you for your self-righteousness. And that needs to be done. But to, to throw that whole thing about being a Jew or, you know, this is, I kind of changed the word to Christian and this helped me to understand it a little more. Look at what advantage then is there in being a Christian or what value is there in circumcision? Much in every way. All my credentials that led me to Christianity, he's saying, first of all, they've been entrusted with the very words of God. These credentials help me to become the Christian that I am. And then God's spirit and God's word took over. But I am forever grateful for that, whatever means, and I hope and pray you are too, that you can look back and, and see, yes, so very valuable. They didn't save you, but so vital. What if some did not have faith? Will their lack of faith nullify God's faithfulness? See, now he's saying to the Gentiles, you know, the Gentiles, they, they didn't have all that upbringing. They didn't, they were known as dogs and they were pagans and, and, but guess what? The same cross and the same blood saved them too. They're just as saved as, so what is he trying to say? Okay, some of you have had a lot of credentials and all that. That doesn't make you any better. They're, they were important to you. However, there's some people, and I think we all know some, that weren't brought up in the church. They didn't go to a, a good school or, you know, they, they, they were paganistic and they, they didn't know. But I love the way Paul says that. He kind of is saying, we're lumping everybody together here because whether you, you were raised in it or whether you weren't, once you come to the cross of Christ, guess what? All the same. Will their lack of faith, what if some did not have faith? Will their lack of faith nullify God's faithfulness? Of course not. Who will God save? Oh, anyone who comes, anyone who comes to him in confession and repentance and in the realization of who they are without a Savior. He is waiting with open arms. Let God be true and every man a liar. Now that's that's scripture, but when I first when I first read it, I mean Paul Paul quoted this from 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 you know scripture, not at all. Let God be true and every man a liar. What does that mean, every man a liar? He's just saying, you know, God's the only one that, that is sinless, and there is every man is a sinner. That's what that means. There's only one God. And he's the same, and he will save. But everyone else, they're a sinner. As it is written, it's so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. 
I don't know if you look and see where that came from, but that came right from the psalm that we did on our first week, Psalm 51. And David wrote it after Nathan exposed him for who he was. David pretty much said, it is good, God, that you did this. I needed, I needed someone to show me my sin. I needed to feel guilty. I, I needed to get to that place. And, and that's why these lessons are not comfortable. They're not easy because it takes us right to the brink of taking a look at who you are and what you are. And David is saying, oh, I needed that. It, it, was, it was proved right when you speak and you prevail as judge. I needed to have somebody tell me. I needed to learn that. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? Now, now here, we're, we're going to take a look. We're going to take a look at the, at least the first time I even seen fake news. There was fake news way back in, in Paul's day. And what was happening is, and he says that, he says it down in verse 8, when he says that there is sland, that people are slanderously reporting. So that means people are going, there are some people going around saying that Paul is saying things like this, that our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness. So... Isn't that we're doing God a big favor by being so terrible? That's pretty much, you know, and this, he'll address it. But when we get to Romans 6, he will really nail it where he says, if you think you can say, just go on and sin because you know what? God's grace covers it all. So have a ball in your sin. Paul's saying, there's slanderous people that are telling you that I'm saying that just because I believe in God's grace. If you really have experienced salvation at the cross of Christ, I guarantee you, you don't want to hurt him. After all what he's done for you, the last thing you want to do is hurt him. And sin hurts him. So, you know, I'll go on. I'll say, if that were so, how could God judge the world? Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, hey, why do you blame me? I only made God look better. See, that's, what, that's the fake news that people were saying that Paul's message was about. Hey, I just make God look better. So why, why are you so down on me? He says, why not say as we are being slanderously reported as saying in this, and as some claim that we say, let us do evil that God, that good may result. He's saying, look at their saying, let us do evil that good may result. And then he finishes that. He says, their condemnation is deserved. He said, that is the most ridiculous thing you can say. Oh, sin is okay because grace abounds. And all I have to do at the end of the day is say, I'm sorry for all my sins. Take that in on my evening meal, and I'm covered. What shall we conclude then? 
are we any better? Not at all. So now he's going to really sum it all up, and he's going to show us that there is just plain no one. Did you notice how many no ones? Did you notice how many all? It is all-inclusive. Believe me, the Bible is not full of a lot of non-negotiables and all-inclusives. But where it is, it is... It's the bottom line, and here's one of them. This is the all-inclusive, non-negotiable. I don't care how many yeah buts you might come up with. This is no one is righteous. Everyone is a sinner. And the the next non-negotiable, the next all-inclusive is... uh, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes will not perish but have everlasting life. See, it remedies, first of all, you've got to know who you are. And then have you ever put your name in that John 3, 16? Oh, it's priceless. And this is when once you've seen yourself for who you really are, and then you say, for God so loves me. He so loved Linnell that he gave his son Jesus for her, that if she will just believe in him, she won't perish. She'll have everlasting life. See, that's, this is the point Paul is trying to make here. And you can't keep building on anything until you get this down right first. This is what he's telling those people in Rome. And I had you go to the Pharisees, too, because, you know, we live in West Michigan. We live in a religious community. We are just as guilty as some of these things that I had you look up because we fall into that trap. And so I thought, let's just take a look at Matthew 23 and in question six. What did Jesus say to those religious? It was supposed to be religious or the self-righteous leaders playing the religious game. So insert in question six, insert self-righteous, because they, what did Jesus say to the self-righteous leaders? That was a big blunder in the printing of this. Okay, Matthew 23, there were seven of them. Jesus just clobbered these, and, and he only really clobbered people and got angry with people when they were fake, when they tried pretending, when they tried to live this, this life of religion, and they were just as phony as, as a $3 bill. And so what he tried to do with, and he tried to do it in many different ways. He tried parables. He tried, he tried um, you know, talking nice. He tried to reason. And then there was some times, well, like in Matthew 23, he just, this is toward the end of his life. And he thought, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pull out all the stops here, and I'm just going to throw it right in their face. So he said, woe to you, seven times, woe to you. Take a look. Would you take a look? And then he started calling them names. Woe to you. And then what was the first one? He said, you what? He called it hypocrite. You hypocrite. And you know what hypocrite means? An actor. A hypocrite, they're just acting. 
It's not the real them. They're just, they're just, they're just acting. And then, woe to you, he called. Woe to you, you blind guides. You blind guides. And that was important because he's saying, people are looking up to you. People are following you. People are depending on you to teach them so they can learn. And you know what? You're going you're gonna to lead them right into hell because that's where you're heading because that's where fake people go. And if you want to know, if you really want to know that, that, that that's true, it's Jesus himself right out of Jesus' mouth. He says in Matthew 7, 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, is going to enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who do the will of my Father. In other words, they're a transformed life. They take it seriously. They realize what grace did for them. And remember Paul, he turned into a servant, remember, from this, this high, high person in society. He then saw himself for what he really was, and now he's a servant. And he was willing, and remember when he said, I do this because this, I was called to do this. This was God's will for me. I wanted to chose this, you know, sitting in prison and getting my head cut off. That's not the most fun choice that anybody could make. But I did this because of what he did for me. See, the day is going to come where Jesus is going to look at this. And that's why these lessons are so, so important, especially for religious communities, for religious people. So to the Pharisees, woe to you, you blind guides. Because, you know, we all were so good at professing that we're Christians but it's like those kids. It's like those kids that professed their faith because that's what they needed to do to graduate from school. You can profess, but you don't know it. You haven't been changed by it. And so he's saying to them, you are blind guides. You're going to lead them right to the place you're going. And and then he called them, what else did he call them? You whitewashed tombs. Whitewashed tombs. Boy, that was such a good description because there was no one that was more spit and polished than those Pharisees. And they had the exterior. They had the exterior of, of, of being, you know, goodness, people would probably see him walk by and say, now that's what a good Christian is. And, and Jesus said, uh, you forget. And we saw it, and I read it to you from Proverbs. I had you go to Psalm 139 just to reiterate, what does God know about you? And so when I said be specific, I wanted you to make sure that you didn't just read that familiar passage, say, yeah, 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 he knows. No, he knows when you sit. He knows when you stand up. He knows what you're thinking. He knows exactly when you go out. That one struck me. When I was taking it apart, I thought, oh, he knows when I go out. That means he knows where I'm going, with who I'm going, what I'm going to be doing, and what I'm going to be saying. You know, all of a sudden, Psalm 139, you start being specific. You start to realize, yeah, he does know and he does hear and even when I think I'm hiding it it says you can't hide from him 
And then it said, even when you're in your darkness, he sees you in your darkness. So these whitewashed tombs, he's saying, you know, I see, I see inside you. The one that really matters, the one that you should be living uh, um, your life for, and it's not what people think. And and this is, you can tell right away when self-righteousness comes in because you care about what people think more than what God thinks. And so he's saying, you know, I can tell that you Pharisees, you're self-righteous because all you have is that exterior, that spin polish. But I can see straight through and all I see is greed and I see self-indulgence. And then he also called them blind fools. And then did you notice, though, when I had you look up in Matthew 23, later on in that chapter, and in Luke 19, tell me, tell me what you thought when you read that. After Jesus got done saying those seven woes, and you could tell, eh, went in one ear and out the other, just made them matter. They didn't choose to see themselves, just made them matter. Did, did you see Jesus in those passages? Did you see him say, well... I give up, I tried, and walk away. What did you see Jesus do? What did he feel for those religious people? He shed tears. He grieved. He fell on his knees before he went to the cross when he knew he was entering those last days, and he knew that he wouldn't be able to give any more. He gave his all, and they still won't listen. It broke his heart. So he, I think so often of the pictures because we see, especially in Christian Easter time, pictures of Jesus on the cross. But after reading our lessons and all, every drop of blood that he spent, uh, that he shed on that cross was shed for us. Right. Well, Hilda, by you saying you're not worthy when you see him shed his blood and you know every drop was shed for you. And when, when, you, when you can hardly, when I see you even choke up when you think of that, that is because you know him. And you've experienced what the cross has done for you. And you have your, you've let that blood transform you. And you're in awe of that gift. See, there... But unfortunately, when you're in self-righteousness, no, you don't see that. Then it's just a whole hum. Oh, I, I have to tell you, um, I, I went to Dot Dyke's funeral, and it was, it was so, it was so beautiful, and and it was beautiful because Dot was such a lover of Jesus, and her life showed it. But you know, um, this church has a. Um, a minister for the old people, you know, like a lot of churches do, you know, they call a minister visitation or whatever, but he, he spoke and it was the simplest, but purest 
salvation message because, you know, and you'd say, well, what was that appropriate at dad's funeral? Well, yeah, because it's just what Hilda said. She is who she is, and she gets affected by those pictures and the reality of what Jesus did, and her life has been changed by it. That's what Dot, the story was there because that's what made Dot who she was. And so he gave that message. He just, he just simply very gently but so beautifully gave that message of Jesus loving you and going to the cross for you and shedding his blood for you and and coming to life again to overcome death for you to be able to go into that eternal place and prepare a place just for times like this Dorothy Dyke was on the her place was finished now, that was a beautiful message, and I went home, and I, I wrote him a note, and I said to him, that was so good. I just, I would give anything if they would let you preach that to the young people, to the, to the kids, to the teenagers, to the 30, 40-year-olds, to the 50, 60-year-olds, that you're just not stuck with the old people, because that message needs to be told everywhere. Just that simple gospel, you can't assume that everyone sitting there knows that, that they've been brought to square one. They hear about all these things about Jesus, but have you been brought to square one? That's when all the other stories then start, you start building on that. But there's no foundation, and I just thought it was gorgeous. And, and it doesn't have to be clobbered over the head it just needs to the story needs to be told and I remember you know I've told you this before but I was singing for a long time I sang a song called people need the Lord and the the words that went to every day people pass me by and I could see it in their eyes they're empty people and they're filled with care headed who knows where on they go on they go through life. Because, you know, the message, he even brought it right to this. He said, you know what, um, we're going to pray and every, every head bowed. But if you have made that, if you decided that what Dad had you want, then you just look at me. And someone did. And so that's why, you know, you think, you know, you don't know who's in there who never really heard that story before. And like I said, I was singing, people need the Lord. And then the chorus, people, every day people pass me by. And then the chorus, people need the Lord. When will we realize that we must give our lives because people need the Lord? And I remember that that song gave me such a uh, influx of nerve and at this, you know, at this drive-in church where, where they're, where, you know, it, it's so hard to sing at these places where people are in their cars because you just have to hope that there's people in them. Otherwise, you're just singing to cars. <laughs> but it also gives you, it also gives you an element of courage. And, and it, this gave me an element of courage because I thought, you know, I, I sang this song and I said, you know, I can't assume that everybody in these cars have really been brought to that realization that there is no one righteous. 
and that we all need to take that walk to Calvary. It just doesn't automatically happen. It is a confrontation that needs the remedy. And so I did it, and that night I had a lady call me and said that her husband, an elder in the church for many years, all of a sudden realized that he knew all the stuff. He knew his Bible backwards and forwards, but he he just kind of lumped everyone together. He never knew that it had to be brought right to him first. And he got saved that night. He prayed the prayer. Here he is, an older man, being an elder in, you know, in the de- denomination, very popular in our community. And he said, you know, I'm three years on as elder, and then three years off as elder, and then three years on as elder, and then three years off. He, we, he said, every three years, they put me back on. And he said, I can't believe that I didn't know this. See, so you know that it's obvious from experience that you can't assume everybody's got to be brought to this realization. And so this whole thing of playing games and religion game, and you think maybe you never looked at religion being a game before, but, but you do. You play it. For, you flip it in when you want it, and you, you know, You then don't do it when you feel that you have a right to run your life the way you want it. But then plug it back in. That's called, that's a game. There is no one righteous. He says, we have all, we've already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike. So in other words, you know, we've said this enough times now. I don't care who we are. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. No one seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift as shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Do you know if you don't fear? Because what did we say in Proverbs 1? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. In other words, when you fear him, when you have an awe, respect of him, when you've got him in his place, you'll listen. And also, if you don't fear the Lord, then you sin. It's only when you fear the Lord and you love him so much that you don't want to sin. And you activate the tools that he's given you to keep you from it. Because there's, there's, this is another no excuse. Because you think, well, I can't help it. You know, I just can't. Yes, you can. He's given us every tool we need. It's because I don't want to do it. God's word and his spirit, come on. His mouth talking to you, giving you the instructions, saying to you, no. Remember, wisdom, his word goes with you everywhere. And so there's no place you've gone that you can't hear him saying, now remember what I've taught you. And I've given you my own spirit to help you do it because I know you're powerless without me. We are addicts to sin. We're drawn to it. 
And unless, unless you realize that you're an addict to sin, just like anybody in a 12-step program, you better acknowledge the fact that, yes, I'm an addict to sin. So what do I need? Oh, do I need him. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Repeat, repeat, repeat. But he says, you are not going to be made righteous any other way. Rather than through the law, we become conscious of sin. So, no, your credentials can't save you, but those credentials did make you conscious of who you are and, and, and who you needed. But now a righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. You know, by this time, I'm thinking, oh, Paul, you are taking all what you knew. Because remember, he knew the Old Testament backwards and forwards as far as legalistic righteousness. He followed every law to the, to the nth degree. But what he's saying here is now all of a sudden what I used to know makes sense now. Because when he wrote in, there is no one righteous, not even one, you know who he was quoting? He was quoting Psalm 14. He was quoting David. He was quoting Solomon from Ecclesiastes. So now all of a sudden Paul's reminiscing in his mind. That's why God singled Paul out because he wanted Paul to be able to say, you know what, I know this side and I know this side. And now I know what, why why these verses and what they really mean, why David wrote them. Psalm 14, it's, it's like verbatim. I went to Psalm 14, and I couldn't believe how, how he quoted them practically word for word. And how Paul then remembered, oh, that's right, Ecclesiastes. Solomon wrote, there's not a righteous man on earth who does what is right and never sins. There is just no one. So Paul is, when he writes this, he's recalling, you know what? Nothing's changed. People haven't changed. They're still sinners. But God hasn't changed. He still saves. We probably could have done this lesson in about 30 seconds today. And that's the bottom line. Human beings are lost. But we have a Savior. Now what are you going to do about it? It's about that simple. And so Paul, when he says that there is no difference for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, all have sinned. When people ask me to give my testimony, you know, I'm sure they're hoping for some. I mean, and I, we all love the colorful testimonies. When people say, you know, this is what I used to do and be and all that, I mean, you know, I was a good church kid. I didn't cause my folks any trouble. I mean, I don't have one of those blow-your-hair-back kind of life-changing testimonies. But what I do have is the realization, and I think in this community, in this West Michigan area, a lot of us have testimonies like this. 
we were taught that we better be good and we better not break the commands and all this kind of thing. And, and that's in that we're, we're so grateful that we had that. But my testimony is this. Yes, I was a good church kid. And yes, I didn't cause my folks any trouble. But my testimony is this. I am just as lost as anybody. And the greatest day of my life is when I realized I was one of the all. Because in your self-righteousness, in your, in your um, obeying all the right laws, you have a tendency to think, oh, no, that, you know. We almost think that Jesus died harder for them. He didn't have to die quite as hard for me. I mean, you know, this is terrible, and I would never say that out loud only to make a point. But I think sometimes our way of thinking in our religious, and now I'm seeing that was all fake, but I was thinking that, oh, I'm so glad Jesus died for them. I didn't think I was that bad in the greatest day of my life. And that makes a great testimony, I'll have you know. It better blow your hair back because it shows that everyone should have a story like that. You come to the realization, I'm one of the all. And only when you come to that part, then can everything start from there. We are justified freely by his grace. Justified. And you know what you're taught? You're taught you're just as if you'd never sinned. Right? I mean, you know, I, I think of how pathetic of a sinner I am. And yet when I came to the cross and his, his blood washed me whiter than snow and cleansed my sins, past, present, and future, that the Lord looks at me now as holy and pure and blameless. I mean, that's incredible. When did that happen? And this is where sometimes people uh, flounder with this. When you were justified, when that, there was a split second, there was a split moment in time. And a lot of people say, well, I don't know when that really happened. Well, maybe you don't, but you know what? God does. God knows there was a split second in time because for one thing, your whole eternal destiny changed. When you, were, when you were justified, when you came to the cross and, and needed a Savior, and you came humbly before that cross, and you asked him to be your Savior, not the Savior, your Savior. When that happened, the angels celebrated over you because you repented. You confessed who you were. So, yes, there was a second in time when the angels, when heaven had an uproar over you. Bible says that. I'm not making it up. And then there's also a reason I know that is split second in time is because God knew that he just, all of a sudden, you know what? He doesn't blot your name out of the book of life. He leaves it in. Because you made that decision to come to Christ. And that's why in Revelation, you are going to know that your name's in the book. And it's only the names that have been blotted out. They will not go into, into heaven because they refuse to see themselves. So there was a second in time that you were justified. And we are justified freely by his grace. 
So this freedom, that's why I was saying it this morning. I mean, I love it. I could sing it a zillion times. I'm free from the fear of tomorrow because I know my future. Oh, that, that's a freedom. I don't have to carry that. I'm free. I can watch the news all I want and say, oh, poor people. And I do, poor people. They just don't realize it. They don't, they don't have to be nervous. They don't have to because I know. I have blessed assurance. And, and then that I'm free from the guilt of my past. Like what David said, I'm glad that, that you confronted me and that you showed me. I'm glad that you did that. It was painful. I didn't want to see that for myself. I don't like to see that for myself. But, oh, that changed everything. And that's why I asked you the question, why did Revelations 3, 21 and 22, how did that change everything? Or at question 16, how come that verse changes everything? I'll read it again. Righteousness that comes through faith in Jesus to all who believe. So why does that change everything? Instead of being lost and hopeless and heading to hell with, with, no, with no hope of, of life eternal in heaven with him? No, that verse changed it all. If you want it, it's there. As God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood, he did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time. You know, what, what does that mean? He left some sins unpunished. I mean, I think the, I look at the whole Testament and I think about every year, what did those people have to do? They had to kill that little lamb, and that blood had to be shed, and, and then the high priest had to go to the Holy of Holies, and, and all, you know, all those rituals. But did that, little lamb's, did that little lamb's blood save them? No, they had to come back the next year and do it again. But what was that for? That was, that was a symbol of the hope that they could hang on to, that someday real blood was going to be shed, and that blood would be sufficient. So this is, for, for all of the Old Testament, they just hung on tight. Every time they, they, they killed that little lamb, that little lamb didn't, didn't save him. That little lamb did not, um, uh, that little lamb's blood did not cover their sins. But it did remind them that Jesus would. Now, you say, yeah, you know, boy, we do live in a great time, don't we? We live after Calvary. We live after Pentecost. and I mean, we're, we're living in such a great age that way. But in a sense, we're kind of living in the same kind of hope because they lived in the hope that Jesus was coming to die and to save. But what are we living in? Because right now, it looks like the world, it looks like wrong has turned right. 
And it'll all look so hopeless and all look so doom and gloom. And yet we hold on to the same hope that the Old Testament people hung on, knowing that a Savior was coming, that he, that, that Savior would shed his blood. All sins would be covered. We live in the hope that wrong will be righted. We live in the hope that Jesus is coming too. He's coming again. We live in that hope. Just like the Old Testament people lived in the hope that Jesus was coming. We live in the hope Jesus is coming. They looked forward to the salvation. We looked forward to the making wrong, to making everything right. I mean, you think about when God created the heavens and the earth, Genesis 1 and 2, everything was perfect. That's the way God intended for us. But, you know, Genesis 3 came, but then already in Genesis 3, he already initiated a plan. And so we've got all the rest of the Bible up until Revelation 21. The whole rest of the Bible all has to do with our Savior and the redemption and the bind back. And then Revelation 21 proves that it worked. Because then we will be a part of a new heaven and a new earth, and we will be just like the way he intended it, like Genesis 1 and 2. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. And that's why we sang that song this morning. You know, I boast not of anything that I have done. Right? I mean, it's just, oh, that came to my mind right away when I was reading that. But then I love the way it brings back the pop. But I do boast. I do boast in Christ my Savior. Where then is boasting? It's ex- it is excluded. On what principle? On the, of observing the law. No, we don't boast because I am nothing. I don't care how much I've obeyed and done the right things. Good church kid. Didn't cause my folks any trouble. No, but on that of faith, that's what I boast on. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. Again, he's repeating it again. He's summarizing it. Is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too. Since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised by the same faith. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? No, not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. See, now we've got things in order. We've been saved by faith in the Lord Jesus. But because of what he's done, oh, let me live like it. I want to obey the law. I want to obey his rules. I want to listen and learn and obey. He deserves that out of me. So, yeah, it is a hard lesson, but it ends in such a good way because, I mean, yeah, it just kind of shows you and I who we are, but what we have. Now, what are we going to do about it? So, 
you know, and I hope that you understand my little analogy about that worm. I, I, I want to stay a worm. I hope you stay a worm because that keeps me in my human state. I mean, the day's coming. I'm not going to be a worm. Neither are you. But right now, this helps me and reminds me that it's not me. It's Jesus in me. It's no longer I that lives. It's Christ that lives in me. But I, if I to keep that foremost, I got to keep seeing myself for the way I truly am. So anyway, have a good week, everybody. Great lesson.